Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is January 29, 2015, and this is episode 1508 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a good one for you. I've got a guest we'll call Chuck. He's also known as UZI4U2 on the TSP forum. And uh, he's got a post there. And it's about building with shipping containers. It's really, really popular. A lot of people following his progress. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about building with shipping containers. But I've noticed whenever I talk to someone that's done it, uh, you get a little bit different of a story than someone that theorizes about it. So I'm going to bring him on today. We're going to talk about building with shipping containers, things that work, things that don't work, and some things, can you do these, and, well, should you do them? Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, jmbullion.com. I really believe that silver and gold should be 5 to 10% of your net worth in your investment portfolio. And I think at least some of that should be in physical metal that you can put your hands on. Note, I did not say I think you should go uh, and get rid of all your stupid green money and turn it all into silver and gold and go all in or anything dumb like that. What I'm saying is... A small percentage hedge against inflation is a good idea of something with the historical track records of silver and gold of showing the truth of the value of money. When I want to add silver and gold to my portfolio, I don't even think about it anymore. I go to jmbullion.com and I order what I need, and I think you should too. Here's why. Uh, minimum order is 100 bucks, but if you're going to order silver in the mail, it's probably a good idea to order that much anyway. So with that comes... Dun, dun, dun. Free shipping. Yes, no shipping charges at all. Um, better pricing than Monix and Atmex. And personalized service. You can learn more by going to jmbullion.com, where I buy my silver and gold and recommend you do the same. Next up today, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? Berkey Water Filtration Systems, of course. Jeff is a customer service maniac, an incredible guy, long-term supporter of the show. I guess five years now as a TSP sponsor, uh, a good personal friend. He has a lot of other cool things in addition to Berkey's for you at Directive21.com. Directive, D-I-R-E-C-T-I-V-E, 21.com is his website. You'll find a lot of cool stuff there for prepping beyond the Berkey. Check him out today, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Remember, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason, J.M. Bullion, and many other sponsors do give you discounts. If you are members of my member support brigade, Most of the sponsors do, along with about 60 other companies. There's a bunch of free stuff in there once you join, like uh, ebooks worth about $150 you get on day one, uh, downloadable zip files of every episode of the survivalpodcast.com ever produced, and a lot of other really cool stuff. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on members. It comes out to about 18.3 cents per episode to join the members brigade and help us continue the work that we do here. It is the primary way that we pay all the bills and uh, support our lifestyle that we try to share with you guys both on the air and through other means like the YouTube channel and uh, Facebook, Twitter, etc. I put out episode three of the Duck Chronicles today. Uh, the water uh, drain system is working great. I'll be making improvements and tweaks along the way, and we'll be following the progress of our 51 new baby duckies as they head toward production in the summer. 
And uh, again, you can learn more about that by going to the survivalpodcast.com. All the episodes are uh, tagged Duck Chronicles, so you can click on the tag there and find every episode that we've ever done of the Duck Chronicles. I think this will be fun. It's easy. It's unedited. Point the iPhone. I tell you what's going on. Let you see everybody for the day. Upload it. Move on. So that makes it easy. But we do try to share a lot of what we're doing uh, with the whole audience, and that's made possible by supporting members that are part of the brigade. Uh, with that, let us take a look now at the year uh, that was uh, the episode uh, 1508. Here are my three choices to go over with you today from Alex Shrugged at TSPWiki.com. Yet another war and the problem with the Renaissance popes. The Sistine Chapel and the creation of Adam. Or Juan Ponce de Leon takes Puerto Rico. We're going to read Ponce de Leon's Taking Puerto Rico. Um, because, well, I feel like it. If you want to read the other two, go to tspwiki.com and you can do so there. Ponce de Leon is best known for the discovery of Florida, but that is a few years into his future. For now, he's working his way up the command chain. After Christopher Columbus had left Hispaniola in chaos, bringing order to the island was left to several people, including Ponce de Leon. Uh, apparently, he did a good job from the perspective of Spain. From the Indians' perspective, not so much. Nevertheless, his region at the eastern tip of Hispaniola is now orderly and bringing in food. He has, a her he has, he has heard of gold on the island of Puerto Rico, So he leads an expedition where he establishes the first colony there, plants some crops, finds some gold. By next year, he will be appointed the first governor of Puerto Rico. My take by Alex Shrugged. Our perspective on these events are biased due to who is reporting these events. Thus, if a Spaniard makes a mistake, you can feel reasonably assured that he made a mistake. But you don't really know how much of a mistake he made. It could have been exaggerated either way, depending on whose agenda is being serviced at the time. The Spaniards on Hispaniola have every incentive to trash Christopher Columbus to make their efforts to restore order look more effective. Granted, Columbus was not a good administrator, and now that he is dead, he cannot defend himself. His son, Diego Columbus, has existing claims on some of the local islands. Those claims will force Juan Ponce de Leon to search further out for lands to exploit, and that's why he will be searching for Florida in 1513. Um, I could say a lot on what happened there. I want to talk about how this fits into modern psychology. See, what you do is you say the guy before you sucks so bad that you look good in comparison and everything you accomplish, no matter how mundane, looks great because of how crappy everything was when you started and you keep running this formula for as long as you can get away with it. Does that sound like anyone I can think of right now? Could it be Barack Obama? I'm just saying. Is that not the Blaine Bush card? I mean, isn't it? But let's not make this Democrat Republican, because didn't Bush kind of do that with the recession he was left with in the wake of Bill Clinton, who had the greatest economic history of any president ever except the end of it, where it kind of trailed off and sucked? And it really ain't about politics, is it? Do you know this happens in corporate America all the time? I can't tell you how many times I worked with salespeople who took over a territory because the territory became available because the guy before him really did suck. And they do look good in comparison if they do anything right, but eventually either you succeed or you fail on your own. This is uh, information. What is this, guys? You know what this is. 
Come on, from The Simpsons, remember? Here, I'll play it for you right now. This is everybody's fault but mine. I mean, this has just become the way in America today. Blame somebody else for your problems. If you're poor, blame the, blame the rich guy. If you're rich, blame the richer guy. If you're super rich, you don't care because you're apart from the whole situation. If you're a black guy that can't find a job, blame the white guy. If you're a white guy that can't find the job, blame affirmative action. Blame, 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 blame. And the responsibility level is lower right now than any time in history we would think. But this is a formulaic technique that goes back way past 1508. My take by Jack Spierko. And with that, I want to say, hey, Chuck, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Jack. Hey, I've got you on to talk about uh, building uh, basically homestead cabins with uh, shipping containers today, which is something really hot in the prepper space, in the survivalist space, the homesteader space, the tiny house space. And I'm really grateful to have somebody on that's actually done it instead of somebody that says, oh, it's simple. You can just do it in 15 minutes for five bucks or, or whatever. Uh, but before we get into that, could you give people a little bit about your background? How'd you end up wanting to put together a house out of shipping containers anywhere, uh, anyway? And uh, kind of what do you do in the world when you're not building a house out of a shipping container? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I spent 15 years in the Marine Corps, so we spent quite a bit of time uh, around ports and ships and, and seeing these things everywhere. Um, I'm in the Midwest right now, and so we don't have the ports that I'm used to, but they're still everywhere. You see them on the road, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little eccentric in the things I like to do. I've built a kit car. I've, you know, done some of those oddball things. And, you know, at the end of the day, I looked at these uh, shipping containers that were around, and I just saw an, an opportunity to use something that uh, it was cheap material, and we'll go into some of the benefits later of of using these things, but for our purposes, you know, putting them out in the middle of, you know, a piece of property and just leaving them, well, they're just they're just durable as heck, and uh, you know they're, they're not exactly the easiest thing to break into. So when you can't watch something for a while, that's always a concern. So it, it kind of sparked my interest, and then like you said, I started looking at the uh, you know tiny house nations and some of the shipping container construction you see out there, and you know it ranges from you know just a simple. You know, shed, I'm going to throw a cot in it, put a lock on it to, uh, you know, some really nice modern construction. Um, and so it just seemed like a really plausible thing for me to be able to do with the skills I had um, with, without a lot of, uh, uh, I don't know, interference or uh, commitment on my part uh, to having to get things done on a time schedule. Gotcha. Because, I mean, if nothing else, at least it's, it's closed up right from the beginning, right? And I think when you're trying to build something that's a dwelling, like that's the thing that always kicks you in in the ass is you got to get it closed in before it rains, and it usually rains about the time you pull out the circular saw. That's exactly right. And you know, the place I've got this about an hour and a half from me, and you know, uh, when I'm not working on my container house and right. you know doing voice notes and like that, it's a uh, it's I'm, I'm working for an IT company in healthcare, and we're just, you know, we, we've been just kicking butt lately. And so time can be short. So if I have to lock the place up and leave it for a month, well, I, that's fine. I come back, 
I take the lock off, I open it up, and everything's exactly how I left it. Yeah, that's a big advantage. I'm sure there's a lot of other advantages we'll get into today. But can you start out with telling people exactly what is a shipping container and kind of what's their history, where they come from, how they originate? Because I think everybody knows what you're talking about, and in their head they can see it. It kind of looks like a tractor-trailer closed-in thing with, you know, no wheels on it. But it's not the same thing. It's it's not it's not that. And I think a lot of people have a feeling that that's what a shipping container is. Can you talk about really how they're built, what they are, and, and, and their whole origination? Yeah, sure. And, and you're absolutely right. Um, these aren't just a, a metal box that you see on, on the back of a trailer. Um, it, they are that, but the, there's so many variations in, in their design. As you know, the devil's in the details. So just real, real quick, we'll go through some quick history of how these came about. We didn't always have these things. Um, prior to about 1926, you know, there were still longshoremen pulling uh, cargo off of ships on nets. Um, they had pallets. They had boxes that were made of wood. And it was all really up to whoever the shipper was, what, what they would use. There was no real standardization. Um, 1926 rolls around, and uh, Brown Industries comes out, and they start building aluminum boxes. Um, to put their stuff on, trying to help themselves, you know, speed up uh, their uh, processes and be more efficient. Uh, and that goes on for about 10 years. And in 1936, a guy named uh, Harry Werner, he comes out and he buys the rights to this uh, design of these aluminum boxes. And he, he develops the first refrigerated container because, again, we didn't always have, you know, refrigeration and that was a big deal. And if you go into the history of you know, cattle drives and all that and why that ended up where it was at, and you'll, you'll see that refrigeration was a huge deal with shipping. So he, he does his thing, and then, um, and then World War II rolls around. And he, just like a lot of people, he gets contracts with the U.S. Army, and that's really where the standard eight-foot-wide uh, container comes into play. And really it was driven by the size of the roads. Um, and, you know, if you go into history, you can read back, you know, the Roman chariot determined how wide, you know, train tracks were. And I don't know if that's true or not. That, that's what we've been told. But, again, the, the eight-foot-wide standard uh, for his containers were because of what could be put on a road safely and on the trucks of the time. World War II is over, and around 1949, 1950, he sells, uh, you know, his first civilian uh containers and he does all right it still really hasn't caught on and the biggest reason is that there's a lot of infrastructure that has to be put in place to really utilize a standard container i mean it's not just the container itself it's the trucks it's the cranes it's the ports it's the ships all this stuff has to be um, made to accommodate these things and eventually it will be but when starting out, when you're, you know, breaking new ground, it, it's an uphill battle. So he continues on, and in 1950, he actually, um, he sold a couple hundred to the U.S. military, uh, but it, that's about as far as it went. And in 1955, uh, one of the trucking uh, moguls, Malcolm McLean, he studied the problem, saw an opportunity, and this is where I think you'll really find this interesting, Jack, he cashed out his multi-million dollar trucking industry to go all in, right? So six million bucks. And six million bucks these days, it's nothing to sneeze at, but in 1955, that was a lot of money. Yeah, definitely. Right? Yeah, so he, he cashed in. 
he goes in and he creates, um, you probably heard of it, a company called Sea Land. Uh, they were divvied up in the late 90s really? and they went that's, to Mersk. That's interesting. I, I, they were actually a client of mine back in like cable uh, sales days. That's, I had no idea that that was that tied together. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, um, it, it's funny when you start looking at the different companies and how they originated and where they landed. You, you, you wouldn't really want to get into that. Look at the dish company, right? And where they came from. Um, but so Sealand, you know, uh, they get started in 1956. They launched their very first uh, container ship. It was called the Ideal X. And it just went up and down the east coast of the United States. That's all it did. And then in uh, 1966, they launched their first transatlantic ship. So it took them 10 years just to get away from our coast, right? Um, so it keeps going. And then in 1970, this is where you really see things impacting the industry. Um, these container designs were standardized under the ISO uh, configuration at 668, right? So that's International Standards Organization. Now you've got a standard in which everybody can adhere to and things should work. And keyword being should, but for the most part they do. And since then, they've actually added, um, gosh, like six other standards for the construction and the, the design of all these containers. Um, what we typically see is, you know, the 20 or the 40-foot, you know, 8-foot by 8-foot container um, going down the road. There's also intermodal containers, and that's, you know, just for on trucks that are 53-foot. You'll see those a lot. Um, but really, that's how we got to the, the container we're at. So, really, 1970 is where you start really seeing internationally uh, the containers that we, we have today. Um You'd asked about the construction of them. At first glance, what you see is a steel box. But again, the devil's in the details. And if you look at the construction, it's not really square all the way around. There's there's different pieces, things stick out, and, and the materials are made specifically for the job that they're asked to be performed on that box. So, in general, you've got you know corrugated sides on these things made out of 14-gauge uh, steel, right? Um, that'll be welded to a 7-gauge tubular frame, um, you know, a rectangle on the top, a rectangle on the bottom, and then there's tubular uh, sections that connect the top and the bottoms together. Uh, pretty standard. At each of the eight corners, you're going to have uh, cast steel connector pieces. <clears throat> and these connector pieces, again, they have an ISO standard, are designed for the special cranes and lifts so that they can connect into them and quickly you know, move the, that equipment around. You also see on the 20-footers, they have forklift pockets in very specific locations. Um, and the 40-footers, they'll have a gooseneck attachment so it can be grabbed onto. Um, the ceilings are made out of the same corrugated steel, um, but it's arched, obviously, to help with the shed of the rain. And the floors... And then and the strength of this thing, where, where you're going to put all your cargo down, is in the floor. So what it has, it's got three to four millimeter uh, C-channel cross members running under the floor. Um, it's got 28 millimeter thick treated plywood, and we're going more into the plywood here in a little bit. Um, and it, this thing, these things are rated at, you know, about three to four tons per square foot. 
right? I mean, you can put a ton of stuff in there. You can run a forklift in there. If it'll fit in, man, it'll take it. Um, and if you've seen the inside of some of these things, you'll see where forklifts have, you know, peeled out, left rubber, and gouged things up. But they're just tough as nails. Um, and you, you don't want to buy one of those, you know, it's been beat up for your container construction, but they're pretty sturdy things. Um, the doors, they're also made out of, uh, you know, corrugated steel. They're, they run, you know, horizontal or, yeah, horizontally instead of vertically. They have uh, locking bars on them. And, you know, there, there's not just one locking bar. Generally, there's four locking bars on these things. They have a rubber gasket to make it wind and water and uh, vermin tight. Um, these, these things are designed to take the worst that uh, being out on the ocean can give it and be able to do it over and over again for years, right? So um, empty weight, you know, on a 20-footer, you're looking at about 5,000 pounds, right? Um, a 40-footer, you're looking at about 8,600 pounds empty weight. But the amount of that you can put in them, you know, a 20-footer, you can put 12 tons of stuff in there. A 40-footer, you can put 33 tons of stuff in there. So if you're making this into a container house, you know, you're not worried about, you know, live load and dead load on the floor. Ceiling's a little different. Um, it's designed for about 440 pounds live weight, right? So you get a couple of guys up there. You're going to feel it flex and move around. But the, the, the strength in this thing is in the floor and then on the tubular frame around it. Because when these things stack, those uh, cast steel corner pieces, they actually stick up um, above the height of the ceiling. So these containers never really touch each other except in the corners, and that's by design. Um, and, and we'll talk some more about some of the design considerations for your house and how that impacts it here in a little bit. Um, so some of the gotchas, though, that you really got to pay attention to, which you think, oh, just put, put containers next to each other, we're good to go. The gotchas are that the, those corners stick out. So when you stick them next to each other, when you butt them up next to each other, you're going to have a gap. And you got to figure out a way to, to bridge that gap. We really want air infiltration and vermin and all that. Um, what else is there? Um, yeah, on the outside face, on the front of those uh, uh, fittings, it also sticks out. So when you, if you go to stack these things, you're going to have a gap from your ceiling to the floor of the next level too. So um, it's not like Legos where they fit together with a you know near inseparable force sometimes, um, but you'll definitely see air and light coming in between those things, and, that, and that's by design. Okay. So what are some of the other strengths and weaknesses of using ship and t- shipping containers for construction? I'm okay. sure you ran into some things that were like, oh, this will be easy, and then, well, it doesn't really work that way, or um, just things like that. Sure. Yeah, so, you know, the big strengths of this thing, um, like we mentioned earlier, is its durability. Um, the, the steel these things are made out of, and I think you had mentioned this before in one of your pr- previous uh, shows, it, it, it's called Core-10 Steel, and it's specifically designed for a very – um, harsh coastal ocean environment, right? So th- that's great. And if you're going to be sticking it like I am in the, in the Ozarks, you know, we certainly don't have the salt water and the salt air to deal with. So a good long time, it's going to last. Um, again, I mentioned they're stackable. They're transportable by just about, you know, any 
good sized truck. I, I had even kicked around the idea of having a buddy of mine that's got a flatbed tow truck grabbing one of these 20 footers. Ended up not doing that. Um, but for the price, you know, you can get a roll off truck and, uh, they'll deliver it fairly cheaply anywhere you want it, um, within reason. And then when you need to, you know, maneuver it around, it, it's really not that hard. If you've got a tractor, heck, if you've got to come along in some poles, you can do that too. Um, there's plenty of videos of guys doing it. Um, I decided not to do it because for a hundred bucks, I could get a guy with a bobcat to come do it. And, uh, it wasn't worth me messing with for a while. I don't have a tractor. So, but I considered it. So that, you know, that's a strength. They're fairly maneuverable. Um, some of the weaknesses in these things is, I mean, it's a metal box at the end of the day. And, you know, you put that thing out in the sun, and if anybody's ever gone into a, a metal barn or a shed, you know that it, it will heat up like that, right? Um, and, and conversely, uh, when it's cold, it'll do the same thing. The, the, the heat will just get sucked out of it, and it'll be it'll be frigid in there. So you got that to deal with. The other thing we talked about, you know, was the roof. The, the roof is it's fine for what it's designed to do which is to shed the water, protect the contents. Yeah, you can walk on it, but it's not something that you're going to put a lot of weight directly on that roof. If you're going to put something above it, you're going to have to figure out a way to um, put some rafters or a, a something to, across those tubes on, that are in the frame at the top, not directly on the roof. Um, and lastly, the sidewalls. The sidewalls, they, they provide protection, and they provide some rigidity to the frame, but it's just like when you go to put a, uh, a cabinet together. If you've ever done any cabinet work, you're going to put a piece of plywood across the back. That plywood, it, it provides some, some you know, aesthetics to it, but what it's do, doing is it's stiffening up the frame, and it's keeping it from racking, and, and that's what those sidewalls do for this thing. Yeah, you can cut them out, but you're going to see a little bit of deflection in that top frame, um, even though what we're going to say is the walls don't provide a lot of structural support, they do help with the structural integrity. Does that get mitigated if you frame it into the interior first before you, uh, you, you pop out a, an opening in a wall? It does a little bit. And, and what we ended up doing, you're going to have to frame the inside anyway. And Well, I take that back. You don't have to frame the inside anyway. You only have to frame the inside if you want insulation, if you want electricity run, if you want, you know, all the things that a house has. You can use one of these things as is, um, but when you go to cut out those uh, those windows, let's say you want a window or a door, um, or you just want to, you know, open it up for some reason, um, if you provide some framing, whether it's steel, whether it's, uh, you know, just two-by-fours, two-by-six, whatever you want to do, that will help. Uh, hold up uh, the ceiling and keep things rigid. Um, I ended up framing mine in um, because I wanted, you know, a traditional house to look like on the inside of a cabin. I didn't use drywall. I used, you know, tongue and groove siding, but I wanted the traditional look of a house. Um, well, I, my wife uh, had a big part of that decision, um, but we also wanted, the, you know, air conditioning and, and, um, you know, lights and things like that. Um, so when we framed it up, it was just like normal frame construction. And, yeah, it'll help hold that up. 
We didn't cut any windows into the size of the containers because um, we were looking more for the security element of that. Um, but if you do cut those, you certainly will have to frame them out. And if you cut out a large portion of the sidewalls, you're definitely going to have to put in some reinforcing uh, to keep some sag and to, and to keep that that uh, that sidewall, what's left of it, uh, rigid. Got yeah. So, um, in the overall construction process, were there some things that really made your life easy when it came to doing your project, and things that made your life really hard? Kind of the pro con thing. Yeah, yeah. The um, like I talked about before, the easy part was. It was relatively cheap to get a basic structure in place um, that I can lock up and leave and not have to worry about, you know, it raining the day before I put on uh, the roof sheeting, right? I don't have any roof sheeting. Once it's there, it's there. Um, The the other part about it is I didn't have to worry about it, the security part, right? Um, The biggest problem where I'm at, it's in a, you know, gated community, which I'm not a big fan of. I know you aren't either. Um, but, you know, by gated community, it literally only means there's a guy at the front gate, and that's it. <laughs> okay. there's, there's, a, there's a couple of, you know, bathrooms, shower houses, and, yeah, I mean, I think our I think our dues are 100 bucks a year. Yeah, my and, big issue isn't the gate. It's, it's the, the HOA that often goes with it. If that's not there, I really could care less. Yeah, right? And, uh I, I had to put in a permit, and it cost me all of ten bucks. And the, and the requirement was I had to do it within twenty four hours before I began construction, right? Um, so it, it really wasn't much to it. Now that that is a one thing that is really kind of made my life a little bit tough. I have one neighbor, and there's always one, right? Um, I, the containers roll in. I got my permits. It's all good. Um, they drop them off, and this guy, he went nuts. He's like, you can't have these in here, yada, yada. And I tried to explain him. I'm like, look, it's not what you think. Here's the plans. Here's the diagrams of what it's going to look like. You know, I showed him the tile. I showed him the tongue and groove. I showed him everything, how it was going to land. He didn't care. Mm. He's like, nope, nope, you can't have them in here. What I wanted to ask him, and I wasn't quick enough on my feet to think of it, is like, would you be this upset if I had, you know, a, a concrete truck, a load of plywood, and a load of two-by-four showed up? No, you wouldn't. It, it, think of this as nothing but construction materials. Yeah. But anyway, so that, that is one of the cons. Is it, it's not a traditional building uh, structure, and and, and uh, so there are some things you may have to deal with. Now, if I had my brothers, it'd be in the middle of you know 100 acres, and nobody'd see it unless they were on the road when they saw it, you know coming in, right? And it wouldn't be a problem, but. Where we're at, that, that's been a challenge. The other challenge is I'm not a welder. Um, so the couple of times I've had to weld, I've had to call in a couple of favors to help me out with that. Um, I did get some help from my wife on cutting the steel out, and we thought about using a torch, thought about using a plasma cutter, Um Torch probably left a little more ragged cut than what we were looking for. Plasma cutter needed uh, more electricity than we had available on site. You know, at the end of the day, we ended up using a couple of grinders and a bunch of cutoff wheels. And uh, <laughs> it, it worked out really well. It took a little while, but it was very controlled. We got the finished look we wanted. 
And uh, it was something that my wife and I could do. And if we said, hey, let's stop for lunch, like, okay, we stopped for lunch, right? Wasn't a big deal. Uh, that was, that worked out pretty good. One design consideration you have to think about, though, is at the end of the day, it's an 8 by 20 or 40 foot box. And we don't, you know, look in your own home, how many 8 foot wide rooms do you have, right? I would guess not very many. So it's not a standard size when you start looking at room layouts. So if you want a 10 footer, well, you got to put another one next to it and you got to cut some and you got to, you know, figure out how you're going to do walls and things like that. And, um, but it really paid at the very beginning to sit down and say, okay, this is the space I have. I have two 20 foot containers. It's so roughly 16 by 20 and the inside dimensions, of course, aren't exactly that, but, um, you're going to have to deal with that. The other thing was going vertically. Um, I didn't get one of the high cube containers. I just got the standard ones. So the inside dimensions raw were a little under eight foot. Well, by the time you put two by fours up, um, insulation and then put a covering on it, you know, you've got a, a ceiling height of, you know, about seven foot six, maybe a little less. Got right. It. That's not a standard height either. So, you know, if you're a tall guy, you're really going to notice that. Now, yeah, I could have got a high high cube container, and those are a little harder to find, not terribly, but and they they demand a premium when you go to buy them. Um, you know, when it came to buying these things, it wasn't hard. I be honest with you, I just went on Craigslist, and I had you know hundreds of them available within a 20 mile radius of me. It, it was a matter of going and picking which one you want. Now, it wasn't as easy as going to, a, you know, your big box store and, you know, pulling out a two-by-four, look at it to make sure it doesn't have any bows or twists and throw it on the cart. We had to go out there with somebody, and um, it, there was a little bit of security there as far as, you know, who's allowed on site. Because you got, you know, forklifts and trucks running around. There's some liability. You had to put a hard hat on. And uh, the broker said, okay, here's a stack of what I have. These are this much, these are this much, and these are this much. And the price went up depending on how much better condition it was. Um, you know, some had creases in the side where forklifts had rubbed up against them. Some had a few holes. One of the rubber gaskets were, you know, not as good as others. Um, he's like, which one do you want to see? And I'm like, well, show me this one in here. Went in, and I looked on the floor, and like I looked before, you could see where the, the, the forklifts had gone in and out, but there were also oil stains and who knows what else liquid had been dropped on there, mm. right? So if, if you're wanting to live in this thing, you're not going to want something that was used to carry, you know, I don't know, pesticides or something like that in it. it the floors are bad enough, and we'll get to that. Um, but so I said, no, nope, let's see another one. Well, it takes, you know, a little bit to get a forklift over and then do the stack, get another one. It's not something you can just run in and do. It takes a little bit of time, but it'll be well worth your effort to get a good one. Um, I guess now's good enough time to talk about the floors as any. Yeah. The, the, the floors are, are 28 millimeter plywood. That's some, that's pretty thick stuff. Or I'm sorry, 28 ply plywood. Um, it's pretty thick stuff. The problem is it's been, um, drenched and soaked in this, uh, preservative. Um, and it's called Bacillium SI84. That's what, and believe it or not, it's the, 
a health department of Australia. It has the most stringent requirements, so that's what they use, right? And uh, it's it's designed as an insecticide. It, it preserves the wood, keeps termites and all sorts of other nasties out of it. But it's not something that I want my family, you know, breathing off gas of. Now, a container is is naturally and designed to be not airtight, but pretty darn close. You're not going to get a good breeze through that thing uh, to, you know, help air it out. So when you lock that thing up, you need that stuff to, to, to not be in there. Um, you got a couple options. One, you can you can tear out all the plywood, which you know they they've got more screws than you could count in that thing, and it's going into steel, and it's underneath a ridge on all you know, on all four sides. It's really just a pain. Most people won't go that route. Um, what they what we choose to do instead is to seal it up. So what you got to do is you got to put a you got to clean it up really good. I mean, real good. What we did was. We used uh, some simple grease, a good degreaser, you know, with long-handled scrub brushes, and we just just scrubbed it and scrubbed it and scrubbed it with some water, rinsed it out, got it real good. Then we took a um, isopropyl alcohol and used about a gallon per container to get, you know, as a solvent, right, to get everything else up. And key on that: no open flames. All right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it'll come nope. out, but you won't like the way it does. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I'm, sure, I'm just thinking you might want a respirator if you did this, but it would probably work really well. One of the things we've used in a lot of restoration of military firearms where the stocks are just soaked in creosote is um, oven cleaner. It just, yeah. it just comes out. It's gross. you got to get rid of it when it's done, but it just strips it like... I mean, lightning fast. I don't know that I'd want to breathe it inside a shipping container, a couple cans of it, but it would probably work. <laughs> oh, yeah, that would strip it out well. And, and you're right. You do need to have some, you know, positive airflow or a respirator when you're doing this. We had a fan, one of those high-volume fans set up on the end of it. And uh, the way I had my shipping containers, the, the doors on them, there's only one door on each of them, so I had them going in opposite directions. So I had the doors open, and by then we'd already cut the middles out, uh, with those grinders, so I had some cross ventilation going through there, and yeah, we had as much air flowing through there as we could. Um, and even then, you wanted to be on the upwind side of it; you didn't want to be sucking those those fumes in for very long. Um, but when we got done, and that thing dried out, man, it was bone dry, just as dry as we could physically get, degreased, and it looked good. So that's fine. But now we got to get that. We got to seal it. And, and what we ended up using was an epoxy sealant. Um, the, the vapor pressure on this stuff on the bacillium isn't terribly bad. So a good epoxy, you lay it down. You know, it's two-part epoxy. It seals up. It's hard as a brick. That's awesome. Um, we didn't seal the bottom, and part of that is so that it has a way to breathe out that way. Um, we had wanted to. We considered putting in some spray foam insulation on the floor because nobody likes a cold floor. But at the end of the day, it is determined it'd probably be best just to leave that underside exposed. Um, and since it's leaching out, you know, preservatives and everything, get that out and get it away as much as we can. But the top going to the inside, that was completely sealed up. And a seal is only as good as its integrity, right? So we can't have the epoxy getting gouged up and ripped up. And we're still doing construction. So... What we did was we put down quarter-inch ply over the top of the epoxy 
basically to protect the epoxy at that point. So, you know, we've got two physical barriers and that sealed epoxy barrier between us and that preservative that's in the floor. So we feel pretty good about it. Later on, we'll end up putting, which we already did it, but we did it towards the end. When we laid down the finished floor, it's a snap lock, you know, laminate stuff. Um, that's another barrier there. Um, so we, we, pre- we feel pretty confident that we've got that problem solved. We did a lot of research on what it is, and there's, there's some other folks that have done some stuff on the Internet um, that have done similar things. And so we're good with that piece. Um, so that, that took care of the floor, right, um, as far as getting it ready to go. Uh, just one note, when, when we cut out the middles, steel is heavy. I know that sounds pretty obvious, yeah, right? But when you go to cut these things out, and you don't want to just take your grinder and start grinding out and do a 20-foot cut and let that 20-foot wall come down, um, especially when it's just you and your wife. So <laughs> what we did was we we used a – actually, I forgot to mention, we used a circular saw blade, a metal cutting blade, and we cut slits from the bottom to the top every two or three feet. Got yeah. And then we'd grind the bottom, and we'd leave a tab on each side, one-inch tab, and then we'd go to the top to cut everything but a one-inch tab. And then when we had everything ready, like, all right, cut the bottoms, and then we'd cut the top tab and the bottom tab, and it would slip down one inch, that just little pop down, and my wife would hold it. I'd get down off the ladder, grab that two- or three-foot section, and I could carry that out. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, because I think what would happen to some people is you look at that sidewall and you don't really get how heavy that material is because the sidewall, you start thinking about it like a car door or something. It seems kind of thin. You get the scale wrong in your head, and next thing you know, you're being smashed in the face with a 400-pound hunk of steel. Exactly. Now, we really wanted to be able to use it you know, in one big piece because, you know, let's be honest with you, that, that's a valuable resource, right? I can make a... Uh, an overhead for our patio. I could do something like that. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it was just safer and easier for us to do it. You know, I, I can't well, but I could overlap those corrugations and, you know, do something with it. I still have them. I have them tucked under the, the container, and I'll use them for something one of these days. Um, that, that probably comes from my uh, grandfather being a farmer. He always had something stashed that he was going to use one of these days. Um, so uh, that, that was the big thing with cutting out the middles. Uh, once we had the floor down, before we did the floor, we cleaned it, we had it all ready. But remember I told you about how those corner pieces, they stick out? Um, so when we buttoned them up next to each other um, and we cut everything out in the middle, we realized, or we knew ahead of time, but we saw, you know, we had a gap in between the on the floor and on the ceiling that we had to seal up. So what we ended up doing was just taking some metal flashing and some, you know, liquid nails for metal. We just ran a bead on each side of it, laid the flashing down, and, and that covered the hole. And then later on, like I say, we put the plywood over it, we put the snap lock on top of it, so we got a good seal there. Flooring on the inside was pretty easy to do. But when you go to talk about sealing the roof, that's where it gets a little more complicated. Um, I mentioned earlier that the roofs are, are curved to on the, on the top to shed water. Well, when you put two of them next to each other, those curves are parallel, and so they want to shed water 
half of it to the outside, but the other half goes to the middle of your roof now where you've made this hole in your roof. So to fix that, I, we ha- we used a similar approach. We used a uh, some of that uh, thinner, uh, lighter weight foil that has like a rubberized adhesive back on it, right? We put a layer of that down across a hole. Then we used some flashing again, liquid nails, flashing down on top of it. So now I've got one rubberized foil piece. I've got a metal, I've got an aluminum flashing on top of that for some rigidity. And then we took some, you know, that rubber uh, ceiling, or I'm sorry, roofing compound, sealed the edges of the flashing really good. And then we started building it up over the top of that flashing until it was higher than the, the top peak of that curve on the roof. And it, it's only a, you know, an inch, inch and a quarter, not, not a lot. Built it up and then we feathered it out so that it goes all the way to the middle of the container. Now, honestly, it, it's fine the way it is. And, and, you know, every, you know, what, two, three years ish, you, you need to go back and refresh that, you know, put another coat on. But really this, this, this initial cabin, this, two-container cabin. That's just phase one of what we want to do. Phase two will include two more of these um, placed about 24 feet to the side, and I won't cut the middles out of those, but one will be a bunkhouse with just a, you know, queen bed and some bunk beds, and then the other one will be half bathroom, half uh, storage, and then over all four of them in the space in the middle, we want to put a, a metal roof, whether it's a, you know, carport with short legs or, or something, and, and what that'll do is it'll one it'll negate the need for the for the rubber roofing uh, ceiling, right? But it'll also shade the containers um, from the sun. Uh, we put good bat insulation in the framing, um, but you know still if you can keep the heat off of it, that's even better. Um, and also with the, that metal roof up there, I'll be able to do some rain catchment. And uh, we don't have water on the property, which, man, that's a real negative about this property. Um, One thing we learned when we were digging out the the footers to put this thing down, um, we'll go into that in a little bit, is that I apparently have every single rock in the Ozarks on my property. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Right. Um, So, uh, you know, when you go to dig a well, uh, that's the well guys, they, they tend to, use that as a reason to charge you more reasonably so right sure i mean i wanted wouldn't you i mean it sucks it does and if you don't have water on your land you're not staying there that's just the way it is right i mean you you cannot stay there for a long time without water so with the rain catchment idea we're going to try to catch as much rain off that metal roof as we can and of course you know getting the right size cistern is going to be important to the ability to stay there for a long period if we wanted. Um, so the, the roof, getting it sealed in between there with that roofing cement, that works now. And it, it'll work for a good long time. And if I never get to the other things, it will continue to work. I just have to refresh it. The concept of building this cabin is we go down and we enjoy it, but we don't want to do a lot of maintenance on it once it's built. Right? Um, you know, it's a metal out structure. That's awesome. The Oh, the snap lock floor, it's, it's, you know, supposed to be the, you know, 30 year variety. And that's if you're using it every day. If I'm lucky, I get down there twice a month 
So it should last a good long time. Um, you know, uh, the outside, when we had a deck built, that's the only thing I didn't do myself. I, you know, a deck, almost anybody down there can build a deck. I let them build the deck. But I had them put, you know, that uh, composite decking down. So I'm not always having to go strip it and stain it and all that other stuff. Um, and with the metal roof on it, I'm hoping really that will add to the longevity of the cabin with a minimal amount of maintenance in the future. Okay, very cool, man. Um, do, do you have ideas for basic designs that people could could do? Yours looks like you have a, a fair amount of carpentry skill, if, if nothing more than that. It's, it's pretty impressive, some of the... Uh, the interior work. There, there are ways maybe to make that side of things easier by keeping things simple, or uh, you know, what are your thoughts on combining them to make larger widths and things like that? Yeah. So um, when it when it comes to building these, you know, the the, the simplest one is just one container, drop it in, do what you got to do. Um, the next easiest would be, quite honestly, would be dropping one in. And then dropping another one, say, 8 feet or 10 feet or whatever, to one side of it, you put a door or a wall across the back, you put a wall across the middle in between them, now you've got that, you know, 20 by 10 or whatever space you want to use the main room. You can do whatever you need to in there. Um, and then you cut doors into the side walls, which if you only have a couple of doors to make, you know, rooms in the actual containers – that's fairly simple. Um, you put a, you're going to have to put a roof over the whole thing. And there's some guys on the Internet that have done this this style. Um, my, my carpentry skills are just, you know, what I've acquired. And, you know, when I was, in the, again, in the Marine Corps, I was, when I was married, you know, it was one of those things that you can't, you're not making a lot of money at the beginning. And if you want something, you can either save up your pennies for it. Um, you can use a credit card, which all too many of them do, which we weren't going to do, or... You can make it yourself. Figure out how to do it. Um, there are things that you can do yourselves. There are things that you really ought to leave to others. Um, and I really learned that on one area, electrical. I, you know, doing the mains, I should have probably had an electrician do it. And I admit that in the thread there in the, in the forum post, right? I probably should have, you know, let some other people do that for me. But and my uncle and my father were both electricians in some capacity in their lives, and I've worked with them before. And I think I got it safe and, and the way it needs to be. But in hindsight, yeah, that's probably something I should have let somebody else do. But as far as, uh, you know, other basic designs, that stuff, the things I've done are things that you can do with, you know, your hand tools. Yeah, I had a guy I rented, you know, for an hour to move him into the main position. But uh, most of this stuff can be done with hand tools until you start going to stack them. Then you're going to need some, some, you know, heavy lift equipment. Um, just, just to give you an example of what you can do by hand, right? So guy moves the containers into position on, and my land slopes, um, it's probably got a four foot, three foot slope to it, um, over the length of the containers. So he gets them in the rough position. I use a come along to, to adjust them where I need and some, and some logging chain. And then uh, my daughter, my 17-year-old daughter and I spent a, you know, three or four days down there. And, uh, you know, we, we jacked up the back end, got it level on the high side. And, and then on the low side, we got, you know, a high-lift jack that you use, you know, when you're out, you know, four-wheeling. 
and we stuck it under the front and we jack it up. And as it comes up a foot, we stick some cribbing under it, right? To make sure it's safe. We jack it up some more and we stick some more cribbing under it until we get it to the height we need. We get it a little bit higher than we need because we're going to be working not under the container. You know, no, you don't want to do that, but we're working at the corners and, you know, working an angle from it. Um, we got to level a spot out for our, um, for our posts that we, we're going to build underneath it to keep it solid. Um, we level it out, throw some gravel down, and then we proceed to fire up a, a borrowed cement mixer. You know, one of those, what, $150 ones you get, right? Sure. Electric. And uh, we start, you know, putting in concrete block and filling the cells and jam some rebar into it. And we'll do another row and we'll fill it with concrete and stick some rebar in it and, you know, go to the next row. Um, a couple of things we learned from this. When it's 104 outside, it's probably best to go with the 60-pound bag rather than the 80-pound bag. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it, it was a long day, but you know what? We got it done, and, uh, you know, my again, my 17-year-old daughter, she's pretty hands-on, and she's like, yeah, I'll do it. Let's do it. So, you know, that, that was a good time. And, you know, I could have built this thing a lot faster. I could have hired more people. I could have um, I, I could have got more, you know, heavy equipment, or I could have had a cement truck come in. But part of this was the experience of building one. Right. Um, it, it was something that I got to spend time with my daughter camping on our property, doing something. And it, being 17, there's not going to be a lot of time left that we're going to get to do things like this. So that, that was part of it. Um, the, now what's interesting is the top of this thing. So I got a, I've got this pier now made of cement block. It's full of concrete. It's got rebar in it. Um, and you're thinking, well, you're just going to let the jack down. You're going to set this container on it, but it's still just sitting on it. So the thought was we, we got a metal plate and bent some rebar into a Z shape. And we had a buddy of mine, actually, his name's Kickstand. He works in a motorcycle shop, right? Um, I said, hey, you want to weld these up for me? He's like, yeah, sure. So we weld one part top of the Z of the rebar to the metal plate. And while the concrete was wet, we sunk that rebar down into the concrete and left that metal plate sitting on top of the block. So when it dried, that, that rebar is locked in and it's welded to the plate. So that plate's locked in. And another buddy come down a little bit while later and he welded the containers together and then he welded them to the plate. So it, it's all one unit at this point. Um, so, you know, that, that's just kind of some of the things that we go through that, the, you know, the isopropyl alcohol, a buddy of mine owns a print company. He's like, we use them all the time to clean the plat and say, hey, here's five gallons. Knock yourself out, right? And then not only that, he volunteered to come help scrub and clean it up. So it, it was a win-win. So with it all said and done, let's say you bought another piece of property, you wanted to put a structure on it. Would you go this way again? Would you, you know, go back to a broker, buy another um uh, a container and build another structure with a container? Uh, or would you say, you know, I've got one of those, did one of those, maybe there's a faster, easier way. Do you think it's worth the um, the extra work, I guess, in some ways that it takes to make these things work out for you? Wow, that that's a million-dollar question right there. Part of me is I've accomplished this now. It's no problem. Uh, I could do it again if I wanted to, but it was a lot of work. 
It really was. Um, not saying that a frame house would be any less, uh, but if I had to do it all again, I would not repeat the same structure that I did today. Um, I have plans uh, that I've drawn up and, you know, Google SketchUp, right? But some really cool houses, um, that was, you know, with a great big, you know, master hall and everything. So I've even done one with 12 containers and a castle formation that would be really cool. Probably never come to fruition. But if I was going to build another uh, structure, it would take a lot to convince me to do it with, with shipping containers. Mm. Uh, it's, it's one of those things that if you're going to do it yourself and you've got more time uh, that's going to be spread out over years and you don't want it like in the next six months, um, it might be a project that you can take on. If it's something that, you know, wife saying, look, we got to have it in the next six months and we don't, I don't want to mess with it. I don't want to do any of that stuff. Eh, probably not for you. My brother-in-law, he's got a piece of property not too far from us. We bought one of those uh, metal sheds that they use for cabins, right? That are, they're, they're fairly nice. Yeah. Um, and they've done them real nice. And, you know, his was in in a month and done and they're living out of it. Right. Part of me when I was building mine was a little jealous. Um, I'm down here, you know, busting my butt all the time. He's over there in the hammock, you know, drinking a frosty one. So, um, but at the end of the day, I really like what Was yours a little more economical, though, or did he probably get damn close to the same price per square foot, relatively speaking, based on finish and stuff like that? Because I think one thing people don't get is like, oh, this guy built this house with a $4,000 container. Well, you know, bathroom tile costs what bathroom tile costs. But, you know... Would you say that you had a, a financial advantage in the end, or was it a break-even? Um, I have a little bit higher-end finishes in mind than what I need and probably what my wife wanted. It's a small space, so you can do high-end finishes relatively cheaply, right, especially if you uh, if you hit up, like, Habitat Restore and stuff like that, which I had the time to do, um, so I did, and, and my wife did, and, and you know, it, it turned out real nice. Um, his, he's got a nice place as well. Um, per square foot, we probably are about the, about even. Okay. Now I will tell you this though, um, his his metal walls, right? Uh, they're they're not seven mil thick, or I'm sorry, four mil thick. They're your your, your regular metal siding, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, the the inside his came with that that foil backed insulation, and you could put some more in. Um, but not really necessary. That one of the things I haven't talked about is the heating in this thing. It's it's 16 by 20 space. We got the smallest wood stove we could find, hmm. and it'll, it'll roast you out. You really have to be careful with that um, because I mean you'll be too hot real fast. Um, but on the same side, it's I told you it wasn't airtight, but it's pretty sealed up. That's a good thing for air infiltration. But when you light a fire. If you go in and out of the door, you'll start to see the, the stove. It'll start huffing, right? It, it's, it's pulling air. Um, and so we really have to leave a window cracked to, to get good ventilation in there, even in the winter, to, to keep it going. Um, same thing with the air conditioner, right? It'll run in there, and you know, in the morning, if you leave it running cool all night, you could hang meat in there in the morning. So... Um, for that standpoint, I probably have a tighter building than he does. Um, 
Uh, but I, I used him. He came over and helped me put in the, the stack on my on my wood stove, and and we put tile behind them. And he's done some in his house now. And uh, but as far as you know, dollar for dollar, it's you're gonna you, you may break even. You may actually spend a little more. But at the end of it, you're gonna have a a, a, a building with an outside structure made of solid steel that is designed for a harsh environment. Um, that's not not the same as what a metal building is you'd buy. Um, now, one thing I do want to point out, and this it just drove me crazy when I saw it. You know, the the, the doomsday prepper thing where the guy made his his place out of shipping containers, right? He had a pretty cool looking design, but towards the end of it, they showed him shooting a twenty two at this thing, and he got a good ways back, and he shot. The side um, support, you know, it's the thicker steel. Yeah. He's like, oh, I look at that. It's bulletproof. And he's like, dude, if you had shot the corrugated side of that, you'd have sailed right through. Yeah. And if you use anything bigger than a 22. That's to say, not to mention it. a nozzler partition out of a 30 out 6 would probably cut through both sides of the damn thing. Absolutely. So, you know, I know that show is – that I stopped watching. It's just ridiculous. And then when I saw that – um, yeah, that, that was just beyond. So, um, so yeah, I would, I probably wouldn't do it again. I'd have to think about it real hard and dollar for dollar. You can't really justify it. Um, unless you really want that. I want the heavy duty steel. You know, I, I want this to be able to walk away from it and put a lock on it. And, and, and let's be honest, unless you're going to put one of those anti-theft locks on it, it didn't do any good really to put a master lock on it. Guy with a set of bolt cutters is, once in, he's getting in. Um, you just snip it right off. And and honestly, if somebody wants into my cabin, if they are determined, um, and I'm not there to watch it, you know, no obstacle is is really worth much unless it's it's observed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he's coming in with a hot saw. He's getting in. It, it's he's going to do it. Um, of course, that goes with my house here at home. I have I a feature say, on the You want to see me get in somebody's house? Get, if it's a brick wall, give me a masonry saw. If it's anything else, give me a sawzall, and I'll cut a yeah. back size hole in that sucker way faster than you think I can. Oh, yeah. You know, get a sawzall and run it down through the deadbolt, you know, the throw on it, and yeah. you're in too, right? Yeah, absolutely. So. Yeah. So they're not they're not fortress of solitude for Superman or anything like that. No, absolutely not. So now another thing that every other Doomsday Prepper website blogger theorizes on is what I'm gonna do, man. I'm gonna get like sixteen of these things and make them in this giant compound underground and bury it, dude. So what are your thoughts on a underground structure based on a shipping container? Okay. So, you know, everybody's seen the Mythbusters episode where they tried to bury one of these things. That was just your straight shipping container thrown in a hole, dumping dirt on top of it. Remember what I said, that the strength comes in the tubular frame. The, the sides and the roof add rigidity, and, and they have some strength in them. But when you're talking about tons of dirt and rock, and let's not even talk about wet dirt, right, you're getting all that side pressure in on the sides. It, it's just not going to work. Can you bury a shipping container? The better question would be, should you? If you're going to bury it, and there's, there's a guy out there 
that has this awesome shipping container, cold storage that he put in and somewhere down in Georgia. But the things he had to go through to make it safe, um, I mean, you might as well just pour concrete bunker and be done with it. That's my thought. Yeah, you can do it, but by the time you've done it, whatever you did, you didn't need the shipping container. Exactly. I mean, you start talking about the reinforcement that you're going to have to put up for the roof. And then you've got reinforcement you're going to have to put on the side. And let's not forget, this is still a steel container. No matter what kind of steel it's made out of, if you're putting it in the ground and it's going to get wet, it's eventually going to corrode, right? So, yeah, now you got to put some stuff on the sides of it. I did see one guy that he buried a 20-footer, and what he did was he buried, he dug the hole. He dug the sides of the hole at an angle, so there is no – there's an airspace, right? And he put shotcrete all around on the on the dirt, so it looks like kind of like a, a pool, but with real sharp – more like a pond with sharp uh, – or not-so-sharp angles, a shallow approach. And then he put steel on top. But he put steel down, too, and he put a concrete cover on the top of the thing that the steel's holding it up, and then he backfilled it with, like, a couple feet of dirt, and it's like, what you've done is you built a basement, right? <laughs> so why did, you need, why did you need the shipping container? It almost seems like if you were going to do that and you wanted a shipping container, it would be better off build a build a basement and put the shipping container on top of it. And then you got double the space. Right, I mean that that would work. You could you could do a, a poured wall or a cinder block and fill a rebar uh, basement level, and then put a shipping container or two on top of that, and then you've doubled your your space, um, but you haven't gotten stupid, and it probably wouldn't cost any more than just to get the damn thing under the ground safely. Exactly, and one of the designs that I've looked at is um, very similar to when they put a, a, a prefab house on a foundation, right? Um, so you're putting this container on top. You have this foundation out of block or cement um, poured, and, you know, the front half is going to be storage shed, and the back half is going to have, you know, water catchment cistern type, uh, you know, tanks or something in it, right? And that would certainly work. You'd still need some help uh, with cranes to get them placed, but, you know, that's whatever you can manage that. Um, you wouldn't be dragging them over it, that's for sure. You definitely have to lift them. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, would you say overall that the whole prepper space, homesteader space, while these things are useful, has a lot of mis misinformation or improper assumptions about using them? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, if, if, if I was going to advise somebody, say, hey, I w I'd like to use a container, it'd be great. Get you a container, put it on your property, use it as secured storage while you build your other structure. That, and if you want, you know, if you want to camp out of it while you're there, that's awesome. Keeps you out of the rain, keeps you out of the elements. You know, camp out of it while you're doing it. But use that space... Um, to build your other space um, in the meantime. I think we have one guy on the forum. I can't remember his name, and it's too bad because he's awesome. He's got a uh, a bus, right, that he put on his property. Yeah, that was cool, the bug-out bus. That's it. And he put that bus up there, and he lived out of that while he was building his cabin. And his cabin is just 
beyond. It is awesome. Um, and now he's, you know, stripping things off the bus, the solar panels, the, the batteries, putting all that on the cabin and using the bus for storage. And I would recommend the same thing if you're going to try to use shipping containers, unless you just have a burning desire for that type of construction and you like that style, that, that's probably the best way to use a shipping container on your property. Yeah, yeah, that's what I've been thinking. You know, you throw that thing on there, you make it a, a camping shell, uh, you, you use it as a hard wall, dry place while you build something a little bit more appropriate. And then when you're done, you've got this great storage building that will last longer than you. Uh, oh, absolutely. Another way I think they could be useful for more of that, like, root cellar type situation. I think the way you could do it relatively easy is if you had a place to get a lot of cheap fill and it wasn't really underground, but it was more surrounded by earth mound structure. So, you know, think of it more like um, looking like a hill and there's really nothing on the roof or very little on the roof. And what you've got is this kind of trapezoidal form in the front wide open and the roof maybe not even covered at all, just insulated. And I think then it could be used for uh, keeping a lot of things at a relatively stable temperature for almost no money at all. Yeah, especially if you could, maybe even without fill, maybe if you went with hay bale construction right around it, um, use something like that to insulate the sides. Um, the, the roof will heat up on you pretty quick in direct sunlight, but if you had a um, you know shade for it, or some way you could do that, then that would be a, a, a great use of that uh, resource as well. You know, if uh, at the end of the day, if you use it as a shed and you built your main structure, the nice things about these, if you keep them in decent shape, they've got some decent resale value, right? So when you're done with it, say, hey, I've got one for sale, you could probably sell it for what you got into it or maybe a little less, you know, depending on condition, and uh, you, you had, you know, free storage for however long it took you to build your main structure. Yeah, I mean, why wouldn't somebody pay? I mean, the whole point is that if it sits there as a storage facility, it really doesn't degrade at all. I guess the only chance you might have is you probably have a little less ability to uh, to transport it than a, in a typical uh, reseller who's who's doing that all the time. So you should be able to get pretty much whatever you put into it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So. Um, another thought I've had is, you know, like you could build a house that way too. So again, instead of burying it, it's kind of a three-sided setback. I think that would work. And I think it has a lot of, basically now you've got an earth contact structure, but that, and that's the other thing I think that people don't get is like, do you know how much dirt we're really talking about there? It's, it's a lot of dirt. It, it's, it's, you know, the word tons doesn't even begin to convey, what you're talking about when we looked at doing just some earth tank construction for basically above grade water tanks and you start looking at 10 cubic yards seems like a lot of dirt until you start shaping it into something and then doesn't go as far as you think it would. Oh no, it certainly doesn't. And anytime you put that, that dirt or, you know, that fill or anything up against that steel, you really need to start thinking about the side load that you're putting on it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and again, corrosion, how long is it going to be there? Um, yeah, that almost makes it like not worth doing when you start looking at it that way. There's, there's just better ways to do that. And the container is not going to save you that much. I think there's a lot of, 
there's this desire that people have to have something that's just so simple and easy that I'll just this is my magic bullet. And I think we see that in everything. We see it in housing, alternative energy, permaculture, you name it. Everyone's looking for that silver bullet, or in this case, I guess, the steel bullet. And things all have limitations. Absolutely. And you know, the limitations on these uh, containers, um, until you get down to the details, they're not obvious, right? I mean, it's like, oh, they're, they're, they're wind, watertight. They use them all the time. They're durable as heck. Why wouldn't I want to? Well, take a look at the details and then think about what you want to do with it um, and, and, and how you would overcome the, the shortcomings in those details. And pretty soon you realize, well, I've got to have a workaround for a workaround, and then there's this other workaround. And before you know it, it's like, man, maybe I just ought to pour some concrete and put a stick house out. Yeah, yeah. I I think there's and I think there's a lot of um, I guess nostalgic uh, wannabeism around a lot of this stuff in this space because as soon as you start talking about shipping container housing, what's the what's the what's the other thing that's right there? Tiny houses, right? So, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you mentioned Tiny House Nation. Do you watch that show at all? I watch this show, you know. Oh, yeah. And it's not like, okay, somebody decided this couple must move into a tiny house. No, no, no. They want to do it to repay some debt to the earth spirit or whatever it is. And, <laughs> and they feel like we have to do this. It's going to bring us closer together. You know what will bring you closer together? Talking. I'm just saying. But whatever. And then... <laughs> All, and I know there's some non-reality TV stuff going on. That show's not too bad with it. But, you know, some of the stuff, they already knew they were doing that. And they're like, they just decided they wanted this. But then people are being asked to pare down their possessions. They're like, oh, I can't get rid of this. I can't get rid of that. And this is where the shipping container comes in. You watch these people build this mobile tiny house, but they have a leased piece of land for the next four years. And the, the one I saw recently, the guy is... I have all these tools, and he rebuilds trucks and cars and does custom work and stuff like that. We need a place for my tools. Okay, well, your tools aren't going to go in your 280-foot tiny house on a trailer. You know, and no. it, but you could get you know, a few thousand bucks, drop a shipping container on the property, and then you have a workshop. And then when you do decide you want to relocate, you could pay somebody to come up there, throw it on the flatbed of a truck, and haul it for you. And it, that seems like another, like, one of the things I think we should be doing, instead of trying to do all this, let's make uh, an apartment complex out of these things just because we can. Like, this is a huge resource. And what are all the things we could be doing with them? Oh, ab absolutely. You know, one of the things you're talking about right now is it's, it isn't worth the manufacturing cost to send them back to China so they're piling up in these ports empty. And, of course, when you ship things back, you want to make them as dense as possible, right, to get as much in a given space. So they'll crush these things down um, and send them back as scrap to be rebuilt into whatever, right? So um, what can we use these things for here and now um, to make them worthwhile? As far as the tiny house thing goes, it seems like a couple of shows I've seen, they never end up staying where they thought they wanted to be. Yeah. And and it's like, you know, guys, go go buy a used RV. How about you start there, okay? You know, I'm glad you said that. That's, that's what I think every, like, okay, and then people say, well, you know, there's better insulation value, and it's about more open space, and, okay, fine, I get that. 
But you can go buy, like you said, a used RV, and if you use like a get one of the old fifth wheels or what have you that are around right now, 32, 34 feet, way under 10 grand. They're left and right available because everybody wants a little one because it's easy to tow or whatever. This is something you plan on putting somewhere. Stick it somewhere, live in it, and if you really like that type of living, then yes, the tiny house will be an upgrade. But if you go in there and you're like, this sucks, it's not going to be that much better. And, no. And then what are you going to do with it? Okay, you got 6500 bucks into it. You throw it up on Craigslist for five grand, and Bubba comes with his dually and takes it away. Instead and if you of, look at the, now you got this giant yeah, house. Have you noticed how many times the wheels blow out, the axles give out, or the floor jacks underneath the damn thing while they're working on it, the thing starts to fall over on them? Every single episode it happens. <laughs> and, and you look at them pulling these things down the road, and they say, tiny house, but that 3500 dually, you know, it's loaded down. Oh, yeah. It's a really, is it, it's tiny compared to, you know, the average 2,800-square-foot home that Americans have or yeah. whatever it is. But in reality, you got a lot of stuff back there. So... Uh, yeah, if you if you want to try, you know, living in a you know a container house, you know, see how long how well you get along in a small RV first, and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, that works out for us. You know, it's my it's me and my wife. We have a 12 year old son, my 19 year old now daughter. Um, she she comes down, but the way we laid it out, you know, the kids have bunk beds, and being in the Marine Corps, used to seeing uh, what we call Navy coffin racks, right? Yep. Um, you pull a curtain across it. You got your own little space. They got a little shelf in there with power for a fan, a light, charging cell phones, whatever. We got a little closet that's right across from them, um, but the closet's only one foot deep, so you have cubbies just to put your stuff. Built the bottom bunk up high enough to where luggage gets thrown underneath it. The master bed is a queen size. We typically have a king at our home, but queen size fits. It works well. Then I built it up on a platform high enough that I can stick uh, totes underneath it yep. for more storage. I mean, these, you got to use all your space, just like in that tiny house nation. You got to think about what you're doing. Yep. The couch you have is a futon, so another person could sleep in there, and and it's tight. It's 16 by 20, actually a little bit less because on the ends where the doors are, we actually pulled back a foot and built a stud wall on one end that has a regular door and a regular window for the AC, right? And then on the other end, we, we did the same thing, but we put a large window in. We've got two means of egress um, in case of fire or whatever. And one thing I do want to point out, and this was brought up in the thread, and it, it really is a concern. Um, if, and, I'll, and here come the ifs, if somebody wanted to lock you in, how are you going to get out? Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, let's talk about that. So what when you shut these the big steel doors – there's four bars on there, and you have to be able to um, – if, if any of them in the, are in the shut position and you try to lock it, it, it just will not physically go. You, can't, you have to open them all the way up, open the bars up, and then push them in and then slide them over, all of them, all four of them. So what we do is we put that – we take the lock off the door, and we open it up, and then we put the, the, the bars back in the closed position and put the lock back on it. So somebody would have to come in clip the locks, open all four bars on the front, go around to the back, clip the lock, do all four bars in the back before any of us woke up and found out. Um, 
And remember I said about being able to penetrate those walls? Yeah, if somebody's trying to lock me in, I got ways to penetrate that wall pretty quick, usually about 850 feet per second, right? Um, so should I have an escape hatch or something in there? I really considered it. I didn't want to put one in the roof because then you're you know, violating the integrity of your roof, and that just causes problems. So what I was going to do is going to put an escape hatch under the futon. I got to look at the construction of those sea channels under the, uh, under the floor, and unfortunately, they're about a foot apart. And I'm 6'1", 250-ish pounds. I'm not fitting between a one-foot gap in a sea channel. Sure. It's the thing that happened. Now, my boy, he's skinny as a rail. He could probably get through there. But um, So putting a hatch in the floor, good idea. If I, if I really wanted to cut it out, cut out the channels, reinforce them, weld them in, put a hatch, I, I could have. Is it, again, we prepare for what's probable, not what's possible, right? Um, so I'm comfortable with the doors and the locks the way we have them set now. And, 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 and until I grease them, they squeak pretty good when you open them. So um, I, I'm comfortable that we'll be safe and secure in there. Sure, absolutely. So one thing I want to ask you before we close up, there are some pictures of the your cabin on the forum and some in your photo bucket that I don't know if maybe it's because you're using a pano setting or something. There looks to be some curvature to the walls. Is that just an illusion? Yeah, that, that's an okay. illusion on the pano setting. And I was like, how the hell did he do that? And I'm like, I bet he did it with an iPhone. <laughs> yeah, well, I did it with, a, with my droid phone, right? And there's like, if I had to put curves in there, man, I'd have been, I'd have been really hosed yeah. because, uh, I have some skills, but not like that. Well, I, I think it's very cool. I think that there's there is a lot that we can do with these uh, these containers as a resource, but maybe building a, a full on home isn't isn't for everyone. But uh, I'll bet you, even though you say you might not do it again, you're probably pretty happy with the one you have. Oh yeah, we're we're real happy with it. The wife is ecstatic. Um, uh, the kids they love having their own space. You know, just being able to go in, flick on the lights, start a fire, and everybody's out of the rain, out of the cold, out of the bug, has a nice place to sleep. It's air-conditioned. We like being outside, but, you know, there comes a time where it's like, if I'm going down here twice a week or twice a month all summer long, um, there's a limit to how many times I, I want to sleep on the ground, especially with all the rocks, right? Yeah. And it's 104 degrees outside. 100% humidity, that's great when you're out on the lake and you're skiing and you're having a great time. But at night when I'm exhausted and I want to come in and I want to get a shower and go to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. I want to take a no. shower and not recoat my body with the very thing that I just removed. Uh, it exactly. makes me think of when I lived in a tent for six months in Honduras. Was it relatively comfortable as a wood floor? You know, it kept the rain off of you and what have you. Sure. But it was also the case that you'd walk up to the shower point they had for us. You'd take a shower. Uh, if you were lucky, the water was warm. And uh, sometimes it wasn't. And you'd get all clean. And by the time you walked back, the, you know, 100 yards from the shower point to the tent, your body was literally coated in sweat and mosquito and 
dust and dirt. And, mm-hmm. you know, Honduras is a crappy place for that type of thing, especially where we were. But in any environment, summertime, you know, you're going to end up with that same type of thing. And to be able to just, like, be done for the day and clean and stay that way at least till the next day is a huge advantage, especially, you know, camping is a relative term. Um, one part of my life I spent three months of trail camping. I can do that. You know the odds of getting my wife to have gone with me or my son when he was young to go with me and camp that way for a day? Uh-uh. No. So if you want the family together, you have to be accommodating of other members, too. Uh, absolutely. And that, I learned that out real early in my marriage. You know, we were in upstate Washington and, uh, you know, up in the Cascade Mountains. I bought her some nice boots and we're going camping. And, you know, we made it to lunch. And that was really <laughs> Well, you know, you do what you got to do. I think it's called glamping, isn't it? Where it's glamour camping, sort of. You know, you you send me to Africa and put me on safari where I've got, you know, you know what I'm talking about, the big, nice canvas tents with the mosquito netting. Somebody's be like, that'd be great, too. But, you know, that's not what I'm doing here. I'm taking the family down in the woods and uh, we're having a good time spending quality time together. But at the same time, I can get them down there a lot easier if they know they have a soft bed, you know, and going to be in the air conditioning or in the fall, there's going to be a fire. And it's like, okay, cool. Let's go inside. And sure. or if it's raining, I can say, Hey, let's play some cards at the table. Right. Um, rather than everybody cuddling the tent and shiver and have to, I'm, I'm 46. You know, it's not like I'm going to be sitting Indian style for hours on end anymore without it being less comfortable. Yeah. Yeah, I understand exactly what you're saying. Well, let me just say thank you for being on the air with us today, and thank you for uh, sharing your entire experience with this at the forum. I know a lot of people got a lot out of it. Uh, there's probably a lot of people that if they do this, they'll do it a lot smarter because uh, you shared you know, the, the misgivings and the things that don't work with them. There's probably some people that might, might have spent a lot of money doing this when it really isn't for them, and that's uh, valuable too. And it probably has a lot of people thinking, uh, maybe, okay, maybe I'm not going to do it this way, but how does this technology work in my world? So uh, I appreciate uh, the effort you've made for all of those reasons. Well, you're certainly welcome, Jack. And, and thanks for having me on. Anybody that has any questions, feel free to you know, post them out there on the thread. It's not hard to find. Um, and I'll answer them as best I can. Um, certainly don't want to crush anybody's dreams, but I do want to let them know what they're getting into with their eyes wide open. Sure. And again, I thank you for being on the air. All right, folks, and with that, it's been Jack Spiritual along with Chuck today, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd.